Well, when I was in college, I had the opportunity of studying abroad. I took a, a class at the University of Chester, which is a small city uh, just below Liverpool in England. And one of the classes I took was, it was called the Anthropology of Religion. And what the basic goal of this was we looked at various cults and beliefs and, and figured out how are these things considered religions? How, how do people start from believing in nothing, like early on as cavemen, and how do they develop religions and faiths and whatnot? And as we began, we began to notice that there was a certain couple things, a couple traits that every religion had. Oftentimes it had um, obviously a belief in something. There was a leader of that religion. And then there was also a place of worship. And so uh, one, of, one of the days we walked in and the professor showed us a few that I thought were really interesting. So I want to show them, some of them to you. This first one here is Druidism. Does anyone know? Have you ever heard of the Druids? It was an old, weird, bizarre uh, religion that is actually still practiced today out in England. So you might see in the background, that is Stonehenge. And once a year, this group of people go to, uh, to Stonehenge and partake in the solstice where they worship and they, and they engage in uh, like a new spiritism, a revived spiritism of Druidism, right? There's an ancient belief that's been resurrected by their leader whose name is Arthur Uther Pendragon. <laughs> He's, this guy's all name team, am I right? Arthur Uther Pendragon. Uh, you can go to the next slide. He actually, I think that's his wife, they dress like this. That sword there, uh, he calls Excalibur. The reason he calls it Excalibur is because he actually thinks and, and fully believes that he is King Arthur, resurrected. All, the, all these years later, he's King Arthur, resurrected. So he goes around, he's their leader, and you can keep going here. These are the people, this is them doing some sort of ceremony. I just love the costumes, by the way. And then the next one here, is his, his, dry, or his passport, which is Arthur Uther Pendragon. And he's allowed to wear the crown for religious reasons, right? So he, he's King Arthur in his passport. So when he travels, he can go and be King Arthur. It's crazy. But he's, he's their leader of this religion. Okay, the next one, Jediism. It's a legit thing. They follow the teachings in the kind of the philosophical way of Star Wars. And uh, not The Last Jedi, obviously, but they, uh, they, they study the ways of the, the, the Jedi and being good to one another, and they, they get together, they have community, they have a place that they gather, and they you know, practice lightsaber combat and whatnot. You can keep going. This is some of them gathering. And the next slide is actually, they got some news time. Piers Morgan, Jediism, is it a real religion? And he's engaging with these people. And the guy, if you watch the interview, is like, yeah, it's a legit thing, man. It's a, it's a belief. Okay, here's the next one that I think is super interesting. Religion? Cult? Seriously. The company Apple has followers. They have places that people go to and they wait outside in long lines to attend. Okay? They have a visionary leader who actually was kicked out of his company, but then came back to his company, like, almost like a resurrection, okay? And people will gather around at these massive gatherings to be with one another in this religion, okay? Or this cult, you could say. And people are super committed to it. Why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you this because I actually think, I think that atheism is a faith. 
And I think that these people, those who would claim to be atheists, I think that actually they, are, they belong to a faith. They're placing their faith not in God, but they're placing it in atheism. So I want to work with that as our working idea as we begin. I have kind of three points this evening. The first one is, what is atheism? The problem with atheism, number two, the problem as I see it. And number three, hope and meaning in Christ. What is atheism? The problem that arises with atheism and hope and meaning in Christ. Let's start with what is atheism. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines it as this. A philosophical or religious position characterized by disbelief in the existence of a god or any gods. It's a belief that there are no gods, there's no god, period. A lot of people will get this confused with agnosticism. Agnosticism is the belief, just so we're clear and we're working with, you know, agnosticism and atheism are two different things. Agnostics believe there might be a god. I'm just unconvinced. I I don't know. I haven't really thought through it. If someone were to appear to me and and really convince me, I, I could fall that way. Typically, atheists have thought up these things through and have come to land at the conclusion that there is no God. And so that's where we're going to be operating from today. There is no God. This is something that I think a lot of us are familiar with, uh, especially growing up in the church. This is something you hear about all the time. But if we're honest, a lot of us have had experiences with atheism. Maybe some of them have cut to your core. It was supposed to be one of the happiest days of my life. It was the day I went off to college. And that morning, we, were, we attended the, the 11 o'clock service at North. Remember back when they had two services? Okay. We went to the 11 o'clock, and it was sunny outside. And I went out in the lobby saying, I'm going to college. Everybody say goodbye to me. You know, and uh, saying goodbye to all these people. I come walking back down. Okay, mom, let's go, because I'm going to college. And because they tell you college can be the best four years of your life, Right. I come walking down the aisle, and I see my mom and my friend's mom crying. And I'm like, oh, she's going to miss me. And uh, <laughs> so I walked up, and I, I saw them. And they were just kind of uh, finishing wiping their tears. Stuff like that, we left. As we got on the car ride, uh, my, my mom turned around, and she said, Daniel, um, the reason I was crying is obviously because I miss you, but the reason that uh, your friend's mom was crying is because Last night, he told them that he no longer believes in God, that he's no longer a Christian. And for me, this was just really, really shocking because, wait a minute, this friend, uh, we've gone to youth together for years. We, we played in worship teams together for years. We talked about going to seminary together and that we, we'd start a church together. We talked about this for years. We dreamed about this. He got baptized before I did. We, we were all there. We all watched. He was, he was the wise one. We were like, oh, he's, we'd make fun of him because he knew every single Bible answer. And for him to all of a sudden say, I don't believe in God, it, I didn't know what to do. I, I honestly didn't know what to think. I was quiet like the entire car ride. We drove to Seattle, two hours. I don't think I said much. And I wonder if you have these people, the faces in your mind of people that you've known who have just, they've changed from one faith one place of belief, and they've moved to another place of belief, because I think that's what atheists have done. They've moved from one place, and they've grasped onto another. Maybe they were in the church of God, but now they've moved into the church of Darwinism. Now, the church of Darwinism, right? Naturalist. We might want to speak naturalism, right? Big bang. It's all an accident. And we've just evolved to this place now where we are here. 
some of their leaders, right? Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, so maybe there's some atheists you're familiar with. They gather together often to talk about these things, predominantly in the, the secular university. So based on the criteria I showed before, you could say, actually, yeah, they, they are a faith because they place a lot of faith in what they see as the Big Bang. They can't explain it, but that's what they believe. And so we as Christians, obviously, we'd say, well, God created that all. And so that puts us in a different camp, a different camp of belief. Both are faith claims, right? Both are faith claims. Look, we could talk on and on and on and on about all the reasons that people don't believe and uh, all the reasons that scientifically, that's not my goal tonight. My goal tonight is actually to talk through where, where this worldview of atheism actually leads. If you draw it out, if you tease this out, where does it take us? And so that's what I'm going to be looking at tonight. And my, my intention is not to be combative. My intention is not to be um, demeaning to them. Although I do want to critique what they, what they believe. So let's do that together. That was what is atheism. Number two, the problem with atheism. As far as I can tell, every single culture, every single person asks three questions. Who am I? Whose am I? And what's my purpose? Who am I? Whose am I? What's my purpose? You can look around and you can see various communities of people who gather when they align in the same way. I'll give you an example. The LGBT community. Who am I? They'd say, well, you're whatever, uh, you could say you identify as this. That's who you are. Be true to that. Whose am I? Well, you're with us. You're part of the community. You're just like everyone here. We're all figuring this out together. Well, what do I do? What's my purpose? Champion this. We need to fight for this. And you can see pretty quickly, people now have a purpose. They have something to actually move towards. These three questions I find in atheism are actually inconsistent. And I find, I find them actually lacking and wanting. Who am I? If you're an atheist, you say, I'm Adams. I don't know, <laughs> a couple blood cells, a little bit of bones, 50% water. Whose am I? I, uh, I'm, I belong to myself. And what's my purpose? Well, if this is all an accident, if this, if this naturalism thing, if this, I, I guess I don't know if I have a purpose. However, if you notice, people are inconsistent about this. And they're inconsistent in the sense that they don't live their lives like this. I don't know if you've noticed this, but if you come into contact with people who aren't, uh, don't have any sort of belief, they're inconsistent. And they begin to put things in its place. Because if you don't, you arrive at nihilism, which is a spiral downwards of meaninglessness. There is no meaning to anything. And pretty soon, it's just darkness. So people put things in its place. There's a guy, Jean-Paul Sartre, who's a French philosopher. He basically is the guy who invented uh, um, existentialism, okay? The purpose of your life is to exist. The purpose of your life is to have as many experiences that are memorable, that are pleasurable, that you will look back on your life and say, I live my life how I wanted. Maximum autonomy. In some ways like this, accumulate possessions, okay? 
travel. You want to have all these experiences. You want to see the world with your eyes. Be in the moment. You are existing now. Fame, popularity, and finding love. You ever watch, I watch it from time to time, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And it's amazing when you watch this. Yeah, cultural analysis. When you, when you watch this, <laughs> when you watch the show, they will talk, the only thing I want in life is love. The only thing that I want, I'm hoping for, is to, to find someone and to, to have love. Love is worth coming on the show for. Love is worth chasing. But all of these things I just listed, we have longings for them, yet how often do they actually not live up to what we want? Possessions, we buy, 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 and it's never enough. Travel, the excitement wears off. I've seen this place before. I don't want to go on another airplane. Fame, I wonder if you've seen the, the various blogs about people who are famous and they are, they're massively insecure, right? Same with popularity, they're left insecure. They're like, you, maybe you can never be popular enough and that either leaves you, you know, super arrogant or just very depressed because not enough people know you. Or if you put your hope in love, that person's gonna die. Carl Jung, who was a psychiatrist, he wrote this. Death is indeed a fearful piece of brutality. There's no sense pretending otherwise. It is brutal, not only as a, a physical event, but far more, far more so psychologically or psychically. A human being is torn away from us. And what remains is the icy stillness of death. There's no longer, there no longer exists any hope of a relationship for all the bridges have been smashed at one blow. The problem with atheism is it doesn't line up with, with our experience. It doesn't line up. We still feel this, this yearning, this meaning. Christians and non-Christians alike. You can read the stories of people who feel, deep down, I still have this yearning, which, by the way, you can see it in their lives by the way what they spend their time on. Charles Taylor is a philosopher who talks about everybody, everybody worships. It just depends, what do you worship? And whatever you worship, that, that depends on, what, you know, your, your heart. That's going to go, what, what do you worship? If you worship money, all you're doing is chasing money. If you worship love, all you're doing is chasing love. Everybody worships. People want a reason to believe that their lives are connected to something greater than themselves, something greater than just them as an individual. I found this interesting study done about a nursing home in New York City. And the nursing home, uh, this guy took over, I think his name was Thomas, he took over the nursing home. Things were not going so well in the nursing home. A lot of people were getting ill, a lot of people were getting sick. And he took this over and he's a pretty ambitious guy. He said, I wonder if we can, uh, you know, spice things up a bit. So he adds some animals to the nursing home. He buys four dogs, buys a bunch of cats, buys a hundred birds and puts them in one room. They, they talk in the article, these birds all arrived and uh, they, they, like, the guy didn't have cages for them so they threw them in one room and they said, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> Could you imagine cleaning that up? He, he later goes on and talks about the results of this with, with the people in the house. He said, people who had believed that we had believed weren't able to speak started speaking. People who had been completely withdrawn and non-ambulatory uh, started coming to the nurse's station and saying, I'll take the dog for a walk. All the parakeets were adopted and named by the residents. The lights turned back on in people's eyes. The total drug costs fell to only 38% of the comparison facility, and deaths fell 15%. The study 
Couldn't say why, but Thomas thought he could. I believe the difference in death rates can be traced to the fundamental need for a reason to live. Douglas Gruthai says it like this, For all our cynicism, we are at the end of the day instinctively creatures of hope. We look forward, yearn for something more, something better, something to give us meaning, value, substance to our short lives. We live like there's more. We thirst for more. That was point number two. Point number three, hope and meaning in Christ. If, if atheism, if they're consistent with their naturalistic worldview that you are just atoms and it's all happen chance and you're just, it's the survival of the fittest, the strongest survive, then everything is meaningless. It's just happenstance. Something bad happens to you, that's just how it happens. There's no reason for it, just the natural world. But I'm convinced that a compelling, a compelling case, a compelling case can be made that hope and meaning find their truest potential in Jesus Christ. And, and in particular, God made flesh. Think about this for a second. God created everything. We're talking about the Christian worldview. God created everything. He, he describes, he attributes meaning to everything because he's the creator. And this creator becomes a person, a person that we can know, a person that we can touch, we can have a relation with, we can, we can speak to him, a person of Jesus Christ. This is an interesting idea because uh, one of the popular ways people fill their existentialism, okay, is through new age spiritism. Coming to the mysterious. Our lives are mysterious. I have this mysterious longing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and connect with the essence out there. Maybe there's a God. Maybe I'm going to find him, have some religious experience. There's nothing more mysterious than Jesus Christ. Like, there's a lot of mystery there. God becomes a man. So wait, he's God and man? Yes, 200%. Okay? So let me read to you John 1. You probably know this one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had been made. In him was life, and the life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Light and life. It's amazing when you look at the story, if you keep reading on in the book of John, there's a, there's a guy named John the Baptist who shows up. He's the guy who's going to baptize Jesus. And he begins telling of this Messiah who's going to be coming. And they're saying, are you the guy? Like, you're, you seem pretty cool, John. And he's saying, no, there's, there's going to be someone else who's coming after me. There's someone else. So this scene comes up when, you know, he, he's telling his people, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. This is John's character. There's a scene where Jesus comes onto the scene before he's being baptized. And he turns to his followers, John the Baptist. See that right there? That's the Messiah. He's going to be the savior of the world. This, this God that you've been talking about, this God you've been trusting, he's now here in human flesh. Come and see him. Come and know him. He's here. You can, you can have meaning again. You can, you can be known again. 
As you continue on in the book of John, there's an amazing story about the woman at the well. And Jesus comes walking in after he's gathered some followers. He's been baptized. He's told his disciples, follow me. And they're following him. So the disciples go in and they start eating. They're eating a little bit of dinner, finding some lunch. And it's the hottest part of the day. And Jesus goes to the well and sees a Samaritan woman. And if you're familiar with the Jewish peoples and the the Samaritans, they didn't get along. Massive race relations there. Massive um, just disunity. Anyways, Jesus talks to her, which again is super scandalous because Jewish men weren't supposed to talk in that day with women um, that they didn't know, right? You wouldn't go talk to someone. Like women, it was very patriarchal. Women weren't very, very valued. So for him to do that, he begins to talk to her. And he asks her, he said, will you give me a drink? And she begins to say, they begin to engage in chit-chat. And she says, well, I'm a Samaritan. You shouldn't be talking to me. Jesus answers her, I knew you, the gift of God. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have, given, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so the lady begins to engage again. Well, where can you get this living water? Meaning, not just water. They're, they're having a philosophical discussion here. He's talking about water that will never, sat, like that will satisfy you. It's living, Okay. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so they begin engaging back and forth. And at one point, Jesus says, go get your husband. And she's like, well, I don't don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Which, what Jesus is getting at here is, here's a lady who, whether through circumstance of her own or others, is never quite satisfied in the husband that she has. And she keeps moving on, on, on. And what Jesus is saying, is he's saying, I know this about you, but yet come to me. You thirst, come to me. I'm the one who will satisfy. This is all happening just on this, this little discussion right here. And Jesus begins to talk to her again and again and again. And at the end of it, the woman says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declares to her, you can imagine him just sitting next to her. The one speaking to you, I am he. And so the disciples come back. And this woman is so taken back and moved by this. Verse 28 says, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? She's so engaged and and so taken back by this moment, this experience of living water, that she needs to go tell people about it. I wonder, we're getting hot weather, right? And uh, we all experience thirst. When you're thirsty, water tastes good, it's great. But if you've ever been really, really parched, if you've ever been so, so thirsty, when you taste that water, not only does it quench your thirst, it gives you energy, but it tastes sweet. There's something sweet. There's a sweetness to the water. How much more so is the sweetness of living water that Christ is giving? And that's the image he's, he's throwing out here. The living water that will satisfy There's also a sweetness to it that you can know. 
Tristan mentioned that uh, this weekend, Jeff's going to be mentioning some of the things happening in our church. And I'll just give you a hint what we're talking about. Northview is going to be now leaving pretty heavy into church planting, being on the forward tilt, being like foot on the gas. We're going to be planting churches and seeing gospel renewal, trying to create, have disciple-making centers wherever there can be a healthy church. We want to see the multiplication of that. And just by way of application, because if you consider Northview your home, this includes us. This is going to include us. The danger is that as the church begins to move forward, we as young adults sit back. Don't quite engage. We don't share this. Jesus does say it's going to cost you something to live as a Christian, but have we counted that cost? Listen to uh, Jesus' words in Luke 14. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees you will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build a tower and wasn't able to finish. John Stott is a theologian. He writes this. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of... Um, uh, de- <laughs> what? <laughs> Derelict, half-built towers. The ruins of those who began to build and were un able to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity in countries to which Christian civilization has spread. Large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be comfortable. The religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics, no wonder the atheists, speak hard of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. The message of Jesus was very different. He never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples, he had asked them, every disciple, since to give up their thoughtful and total commitment, to give him their thoughtful and total commitment, nothing less than this would do. Jesus says, follow me. You begin to see people drop everything, right? This is, people drop their fishing nets and whatnot physically, but on a deeper level, metaphorically, philosophically, will you follow Jesus wherever he would command you? Why would we follow him? So we can make disciples. Who needs to hear the gospel? People who don't believe. So you see here, the three questions. Who am I? I'm a believer in Christ, the King. I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. Number two, whose am I? Well, you're Christ's. What's my purpose? Great commission, go make disciples. Go enter the world and do something about it. Go visit the atheist and begin to dialogue with them and try and show them the way because you now have meaning in your life. If you call yourself a Christian here tonight, you have meaning in your life. There's a purpose there. And the danger is that we, we let our foot off the pedal 
Every once in a while, there's an idea that, that rattles around in my brain, and because I'm just a thinker and I overthink things, uh, this one has been in my mind for months. But I'm terrified that, that us in this room would latch on to the, the Abbotsford dream. What's the Abbotsford dream? Let me tell you. <laughs> I graduate high school. I go to UFE. I go to CBC. I go to Trinity Western. I get my four-year degree. By the end of my four years, I found someone. I get married. Then we have this amazing wedding. Then we uh, buy the house. And then we, we, you know, maybe we get a little dog. And we'll have a car. And then uh, maybe if we couldn't afford a house, we get a condo. Then we'll get the house. Eventually, we'll be set up. We'll be financially secure. We can sit back and we can just enjoy our lives. But if you do these things, which are good things, but you never press in and live on mission as a Christian, what are you doing? If you do these things, but don't count the cost of following Christ. What have you been doing? All these things have been given to you by him for you to steward. And you just sit there while people waste away. People who do not know Christ, who are living in torment now. And if they don't know Christ now, when they die, they will live in eternal conscious torment. The danger of the Abbots for dream is that we would have all these things, but we'd not use them for the glory of God. Let me say this, these aren't bad things, friends. But they become bad things when we just sit back. We let our feet, just, we're just, like what are we doing if we do that? When I played football, one of the best images I can think of this for leaning forward, we, we had this, an offense, right, our, that was, around, uh, it was a heavy run offense, what it basically means in football, you're trying to score touchdowns, right? The way we wanted to score touchdowns is we were gonna just run at people as hard as we could with one player who was called our fullback, right? And so the, he would get the ball probably 60, 70% of the game where he would just run forward, run forward. They would hit him, he would hit them. He was a big guy, who was lifting lots of weights over and over and over again. And every once in a while, we'd give the ball to someone else who was much faster. And because all these people had been enclosed on the one player, they didn't, uh, they weren't able to catch the other guys who sped around. And one of the guys I played with that they couldn't catch now plays Team Canada for, for or Team Canada rugby. So of course they couldn't catch him. But they, they were built around uh, this one player. And in practice, the coach would come to the player and say, you got to get lower. And he'd be like, I'm low. No, you got to get lower, right? Because when you hit the hole, when you're, the uncommon defenders are hitting, you have to be able to hit them with your shoulder pads and not get knocked backwards. He'd say, well, am I not low enough? No, you're not low enough. You should be running to the point that you're actually falling over. Because as you fall, someone's going to hit you and actually bounce you back up. And then you keep running as if you're falling. And there'd be times when no one would hit him and he'd actually just fall on his face. <laughs> because he had such a forward tilt. And look, us, the young adults of Northview, that's what I want for us, that we have this forward tilt, that when the church says, we want to go see disciples made, we want to plant churches, that we say, yes, let's go. How can I help? How can I be a part of this? I've been given so much to God. How may I serve him now with the gifts that he has given me, with the possessions he has given me? I have meaning in my life. There's a purpose. Let's lean into this. Let's have a forward tilt. Some of us in this room are sitting back. You know who you are. Tonight, 
make a decision to lean forward again. Lean forward into the mission of God. There are people out there who are in rebellion against God. Penn uh, Gillette is a comedian, and he says this. He's an atheist. He's a pretty outspoken atheist. He writes, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't share the gospel or, or proselytize, is what he says. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them, this is because it, makes it socially, because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate someone not to share the gospel if you have this good news? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible, yet not tell them that? He continues, I mean, if, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. This is eternal. So when we engage, when we see people who do not know Jesus, who actually have no hope, they might be filling things in, pretending. Ought we not tell them? Shouldn't we risk getting awkward? Shouldn't we risk actually being made fun of at UFV? At Trinity Western, to the, the non-Christian, as they, the professors mock us from the front? Isn't, that, isn't this, this cause worth it for that? We have a hope because Christ raised from the dead that, the, that no one else has. We ought to share that. It ought to go deep in our soul. We ought to, ought to change the way we live our life. Jesus says, follow me. If that means I have to drop this activity, drop this habit, drop this bad relationship to follow him better, maybe I will. We can tell people who have no light in their lives, people with no meaning, we can tell them that he is the light, he is life, and he has overcome. I'll end with this. John Stott writes, if you had to live, if you want to live, <laughs> I can't read tonight. <laughs> if you want to live a life of easygoing self-indulgence, whatever you do, do not become a Christian. But if you want a life of self-discovery, deeply satisfying to the nature of God, to the nature God has given you, if you want a life of adventure, in which you have the privilege of serving him and your fellow men, if you want a life in which to express something of the overwhelming gratitude you are beginning to feel for him who died for you, then I would urge you to yield your life without reserve and without delay to your Lord Jesus, to, the, to your Lord Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's be a people who do that. Forward tilt. A people who We'll go seek the lost. We have hope, we have meaning, and no one can take that from us. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, as, um, as I think of these words and I think of the words of John, light and life you have given to us. Lord, may we not squander this. Lord, would you save us from the casual life 
There are people that need you. There are people who are lost, people who have, have worked their way into, into the gutter. God, give us the courage to, to speak to them. Would you do your work in redeeming them? Find us faithful, O oh God. We love you and we praise your name. Everyone said, amen.